We turn now after a time of praise and of prayers to God's word. So we're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and my sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, <clears throat> I didn't know how much I appreciated the United States until I didn't live in the United States for a couple of years. About 15 years ago, uh, Sarah and I and our three little kids at the time moved to England, to Bristol, England, where I was working on a postgraduate degree. And I decided six months in that I really missed America. And so much so that about six months in, we actually bought a membership to Costco. We found out that there was a Costco in England and we were like one of two Costco's in the whole land. And there was one just 15 minutes from us. We had no reason to be buying big box store stuff. Our refrigerator was the size of like three shoebox stacked on top of each other. We had to go to the grocery store daily, but we wanted to buy toilet paper in bulk and there wasn't even a pandemic. But every time we went in there, it felt like we were in America. And so as we drove up into the parking lot, we would crank an old uh, cassette version of Lee Greenwood's Proud to be an American and sing it out loud and make our kids cringe and scream at us to turn it off. When 4th of July came around, I couldn't shoot off fireworks, but I could light up the grill and bring friends over and make burgers for them so they would get to experience an American 4th of July as best as we could. They loved it. They couldn't believe that we had lettuce and tomatoes and cucumbers and sliced onions. They were like, it's even got the fixins. This is fantastic. 
Like, yes, America knows how to do burgers right. And as much as I could, I, I, I tried to watch American football and things that I just enjoyed about being an American growing up here. When I grew up here, um, I, I'm at an age when I grew up under the, the Cold War still. And, uh, you know, about half of you are, you know, older than me and half may be younger than me. But if you're younger, you don't necessarily recognize the influence that that played on our self-understanding as people in this country. Um, it, it was a huge part of like the, the Olympics were America versus the Soviet Union. The, the miracle on ice that happened in 1980 was an unbelievable story. And every Olympics was like that. And on top of that, there was a series of movies that shaped my early psyche and self-understanding. These movies included Rocky, especially Rocky IV, the Rambo series, and Red Dawn. And these shaped my understanding. I mean, they were movies that I would watch and I would almost cheer as they were happening. I mean, and, and I know that like, if you're not of a certain age, you may be missed out on these. Either you were too old for them or too young for them. I mean, Joe, Sabrina, I don't know which one of those is your favorite. Rambo two, three, Rocky four, Rocky four. Thanks, Joe. Um, and the old Red Dawn, not the new one, but it shaped my understanding. And so I loved America and had this passion for us winning. And yet, as I grew up, I began to wrestle with the tension of being an American and a child of God. They're not exclusive, but one shapes the other. And one should shape the other more. Is our citizenship in America first, or is it, as Paul says, in heaven? In Philippians 3.20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. You know, as I grew in my understanding of the faith that I had grown up in, what I began to see, and I think that we see now, is that when we enter into faith in Christ, when you come to faith in Christ, you actually get a new primary identity, a new primary allegiance and hope. And that citizenship that Paul talks about in heaven is what we're looking at today. And so what we want to do is try to understand what does it mean to be citizens of heaven? And specifically, we're going to look at the context of Philippians 3 to give us a little bit better understanding and then think through what are the implications for us today. So what we're looking at is how do we dwell in the kingdom of God while we live in the city of man? How are we citizens of heaven and citizens of America? What does that actually look like? What are some things that should be influencing our thoughts in that whole process? In Philippians chapter 3, it's that verse 20 where he says our citizenship is in heaven, but it's a couple verses before that we need to look to understand the context of what Paul is getting at when he says our citizenship is in heaven. So what does it mean to have our citizenship in heaven? We're going to go back to verse 12 of Philippians chapter 3. Paul is pursuing something. He's running after something. That's some of the imagery that he's, he's giving us. But what is it? In verse 12, he writes, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So the key word there is the it. What is the antecedent to that pronoun? He says, I press on to make it my own. What is the it that he's going after? What is it that he's pressing on towards? Well, the it 
is what he mentions in verses 10 and 11. So let me, let me read that to give us some context for the thing he's trying to make his own. In verse 10 and 11, he writes, that I may know him. His goal, his, his desire in life is that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So in verse 12, when Paul says that I press on to make it my own, that it is the resurrection from the dead. Now, on one level, he's talking about Christ's resurrection that, and all the implications of the salvation that God has given him. But really what this is pointing to is the resurrection, the resurrection of the dead, which is actually the hope of eternity. Our hope is not to escape up to heaven. It is to be raised to life eternal and the creation to be restored and renewed. It is the arrival of Christ as our king and the raising of the dead and life forever here in a renewed heavens and earth. And when Paul says, I am pressing on now, I'm pursuing that now, he doesn't mean I'm trying to get myself to die so that I can get to heaven. He means I'm trying to live into the fullness of the resurrection life, the new creation life, even now. I want to live now as it was intended back in Eden and as it will one day be when Christ comes again. So when Paul says, I press on toward that goal, I try to pursue that, he is living with all of his being in light of eternity, in light of Christ coming back, in light of the doing away with sin and the bringing of God's shalom and presence on this earth. And that means a couple of things for us. It means, first of all, that we cannot be sitting back passively or indifferent to the things that are happening in this world because, you know, look, I'm saved. I'm good. I mean, Paul says, Christ has grabbed hold of me. And there's this great and beautiful, powerful phrasing in Philippians 3 verses 7 through uh, 11, where Paul talks about how all that he had done in his life, all of his goodness and religiousness amounted to nothing. The only thing that mattered was his faith in Christ. And now he was Christ's and his life was secure in Christ. So on one level, he could just sit back and say, no matter what I do, I'm God's and I'm going to heaven. But Paul doesn't do that. He says, we can't just be passive or indifferent because, hey, I'm saved, I'm safe, I'm going to heaven when I die. Nor is Paul trying to escape. He's not just trying to get up to heaven. Like, I just want to get out of this life. I hope God comes back before anything else bad happens. I don't want to suffer. I just want to escape and get to heaven. Paul is not thinking that way at all. Rather, we see it in verses 13 and 14, what he is saying. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it, the resurrection life, my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, straining forward to the resurrection, to the new kingdom coming, I press on toward that goal, towards the resurrection of the dead, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying the whole pursuit of my life is to live now in resurrection life, anticipating the kingdom to come. And we have to remember, the resurrection hope of Christianity is a bodily, physical resurrection. And the coming of Christ involves the renewal of this creation, the renewal of this earth. In other words, 
what we do in our bodies and what we do on this earth and with this earth matters. And it probably matters eternally. And so we live in a tension, an already and not yet tension. The already of Christ having filled us, given us the assurance of being children of God, filled with the Spirit, forgiven of our sins, and yet not fully ex experiencing the fullness of God's shalom on this earth. And so we live in this already but not yet tension. And one of the things I think Paul is getting at when he says, I want to live in the resurrection life now, pursuing that, is we have to stop and think through what will this world look like? What will this world look like when Christ comes again? How will it be different in the eternal kingdom? It will be this earth, but what will be different about it? What will not be here and what will be here? And what will I look like? How will my attitudes, priorities, fears be gone or different? How might my friendships, my neighborhood, the city in which I live be completely reshaped and reformed in the eternal kingdom? What God wants us to do, I believe, what Paul is calling us to do is to think about Eden and eternity, right? Eden was creation and humanity without sin. God's purpose and intention all bound up in that without sin and brokenness. And eternity is the intention and aim of what it will be again without the possibility of sin. And so Paul is saying, ultimately what matters and what lasts, press on toward that. Live your life now in light of that. Live in your relationships as if you're already living there. Build towards that in your community, in your nation. And so when Paul then goes on to say, our citizenship is in heaven, he's basically saying our citizenship is in the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in a resurrected life. In Philippians chapter three, verse 20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. But in order to understand that one step more, we need to understand what Paul is actually uh, alluding to, an imagery that would have been very well known to the Philippian audience, but gets glossed over for us. When we think of citizenship, we think of essentially what I did when I was in England. When I lived in England, I was a citizen of America living in England. I was an expat and I just couldn't wait to get back to America. But the term that's used here is actually more often translated, but it's a little confusing or not. It's more often translated citizenship, but it could be translated colony or colonial because that's what's underneath of the entire term. And this would have been how the original audience in Philippi would have understood it. You see, Philippi was in Northern Greece and it was at a crossroads between Asia Minor and what is now Turkey and Greece and was this uh, land that ended up being a, a through route. When the general Octavius expanded lands, he, as a part of the Roman Empire, on his way back, he left Roman soldiers that had been picked up along the way. He left Roman soldiers and, and uh, captains and generals and those sorts of things. He left Roman leaders in the region of Philippi, gave them land and to occupy it as, uh, as a colony of the Roman Empire. Now, they didn't actually enforce anything, but what they did was they, they 
you know, created vineyards and lands and, and got involved in the community, the society. So they were living in the region of Philippi, but they were citizens of Rome and they had a purpose there. Their, their purpose was to be a colonial presence in the outpost of Philippi. And uh, N.T. Wright in his commentary on Philippians describes their role in that region. Their role, he says, was to bring Roman culture and rule to Northern Greece and to expand Roman influence there. So when Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, the Philippian audience would have understood exactly what that meant. It has implications for us, even today. We are an outpost of God's kingdom, God's reign. Heaven actually means the place of God's reign or the implementation of God's reign and rule in the present world. And so it's to bring the culture of heaven, to bring the, the influence of God's purposes into the world in which we live and await his coming. This means a couple of things. First, our primary allegiance is to God's kingdom and God's king. You know, at the second half of verse 20, where he says our citizenship is in heaven, Paul writes, and from it, from heaven, we await a savior. So from the place of God's reign, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you hear those terms built around Jesus' name, what do you think? So it says, Jesus is Savior, Lord, and Christ. What you and I think, what anyone in this modern world, in the West at least, thinks is that Savior, Lord, and Christ are religious terms. They're Christian titles for Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Christ. He is our Savior. These are very religious terms. They're very Christian terms to anyone's ear today. But in the first century, these were not religious terms. In first century Greece, in Philippi, in Rome, these would have been highly political terms. Rome was known as the savior. They brought the Pax Romana, the peace to all the world. Everyone was supposed to be so excited that Rome had come and given them Roman culture, Roman land, and Roman rule. They had been their savior. They had brought all that was needed, the roads. And, um, and culture and, and rule of law. And so you should freely want to give taxes to Rome. They are your savior. And on top of that, the emperor, the emperor was known as the Christ, which is the chosen one, and the Lord, the true king. The emperor was God's chosen one, God's chosen king. So everything in those terms around Jesus were highly political terms. It was like saying, president or Supreme Court justice. Paul is saying that our primary allegiance is to Jesus, not to Rome or your ethnic clan. If you're of a Greek or Macedonian or Asia Minor subculture, or not to your family of origin in that, in that day and age, not to a king in Israel. but to Christ. As Christians, Paul is saying, we await Jesus, who is our true president and chief justice. Our primary allegiance is to God's kingdom and God's king. And secondly, our primary hope is in God's eternal kingdom. 
In verses 18 and 19, Paul contrasts having our hope, our citizenship in heaven, with people who do not do that. And he says, there, for many of whom I, this is verses 18 and 19 of Philippians 3, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. So he's given this description of people who have turned against Christ and are living for themselves. Yes, they're using their body for themselves, what they want. The things that they glory in are whatever it is that they want to do. And they're focused on earthly things. And that word earthly things could actually be translated temporary things. When Paul is saying you can either have a citizenship on earthly things or a citizenship in heaven, essentially, he's saying you can either focus on temporary now life or have an eternal perspective. Work for, live for what lasts and what truly matters. So that's what he's calling us to. Stop worrying so much about right now and live for an eternal life that is to come. But this is hard to do. This is hard because we're very now people. Like it's, I need sleep today, or I'm hungry right now, or I want to pass this test, or I need to keep my job now, right? The goal of most of us, if you did a survey of Americans, is simply to be happy. The goal of life is to be happy, which basically means me and my wants and needs right now. All I want is the freedom to do what I want. That's the primary hope and dream of an American. To be happy, to do what I want. And you can see underneath this our greatest fears and anxieties. Our greatest fears and anxieties are very now focused. Even if you think about your financial investments, it's actually a very now focus. It's a focus on your life in 10 years or 30 years. That's not that far away. And we can especially see it in the anxiety and fear built around every election cycle. This election is all that matters every time an election comes around. And I'm not saying this election isn't important, but four years from now, there will be another one, and four years after that, another one. And we are so easily ground and built up and focused on right now. But for Christians, ultimately our hope is not in a job or a spouse or any gathering of a Supreme Court. Our hope is in Christ and his coming kingdom and the restoration of all things. So how do we do it? How do we kind of live out this primary allegiance to God's kingdom and a hope in God's eternal kingdom? How do we dwell fully in the kingdom of God while living in the city of man? I want to look at two different ways to think about it and then close us talking about just how we approach political engagement in general. The first thing I want us to look at is a great description that you've heard us talk about here and other ministers, I'm sure. It's Jeremiah 29, where, where the prophet Jeremiah goes and delivers a message to people in exile. So think about that. They're people in exile. They are citizens of Israel who've been taken to Babylon when Israel was completely flattened destroyed, and they're taken to Babylon essentially as slaves. So they think of themselves as citizens of Israel, and they just want to get out, right? 
But Paul writes to them through the word of the Lord, verse 4 of Jeremiah 29, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then he says to them, verse 5 and 6, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Build, plant, multiply, marry, have children, live, work, engage. Plant yourself there. Do economics there. Have a business, your land. Have children, raise families. And all for this purpose in verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And of course, that word welfare is the Hebrew word shalom, which doesn't just mean peace. It means well-being and flourishing and God's purposes being brought to bear on people's hearts and lives and the surrounding world. That those who are lonely are brought into family, that those who are poor are fed, that those who are imprisoned are visited, that people are advocated for, that the voiceless have somebody to represent them, that there is justice and mercy, and people come to know the Lord God, their shalom is brought to bear. Eden was a place of shalom, of welfare. In other words, he wants them to seek God's purposes for them, not their purposes for them. They might have thought of Babylon as an enemy, and God says, I want you to love them as I love them, because they are people made in my image. I want you to live for God's purposes in the place in which I have called you, not for your own. Now, if you were an exile in Babylon, you would have thought of one of two possibilities. The primary one would have been to avoid Babylonian culture and just detach from Babylon, to retreat into yourself and just bide your time until you could get out. The other would have been a temptation to assimilate, to forget the God of Israel, to forget the worship of the one true God, to abandon the Torah and just make your life easier by joining in with the culture and the pagan godlessness, and to become a Babylonian. So it's either to cloister yourself off and avoid Babylon and hope that they die and you get out, or essentially become a Babylonian. And Paul is, or not Paul, Jeremiah is saying neither of those are the case. You are supposed to be a different people. You are living in exile. You are supposed to be an outpost of my kingdom reign. You are my people. Live there as my people and love them. Bring about the goodness and welfare of that place. That means we need a theology of place and of God's kingdom more than we do. That's some of what we feel called to as a church. One of our vision and value statements is to be for Vienna, to be for Vienna. And we define that as not just being in Vienna, as in this is the location where our church meets, but to be for Vienna is to seek the welfare of the town in which God has called us and placed us. We pursue, we want to pursue God's purposes for this community through our presence and involvement and relationships and vocation. And towards that end, we want to envision eternity in this place. What will Vienna look like? What will your neighborhood look like? What will the school that your kids go to look like differently when Christ returns? This is... This drives how we approach doing mission in this community. This drives how we think about our neighbors around us. 
and our connection to and relationship with the school. If we were to ever have a building, we would think about it in these terms. How could we use this place to be for the community in which we exist, not just for ourselves? It's part of our calling as a community that I want us to continue to think about. So how does this play into political engagement? Because I do think there is something to what God calls us to. Through Paul's words here of being citizens of heaven while being citizens of America. A couple of things to think about is first this. Rome, Rome did not ever conceive of a time when its empire would no longer be an empire. Think about it. Egypt, Babylon, the Greek Empire, the Ottoman Empire, none of them ever thought that in a few hundred years there would be a day when their empire didn't exist other than in history books and as a tourist stop. The Colosseum in Rome used to be the glory of Rome's power and majesty and opulence and wealth and being able to take slaves and Christians and whoever else and do whatever to them. And now any of us can go and visit the rundown ruins of the Colosseum for a few dollars. A few hundred years, not much, a few hundred years after Rome was a major world power, the empire, it now sits on a piece of land which is called Italy, that boot in the Mediterranean. And that boot in the Mediterranean, known as Italy, is at best the fourth most powerful nation in Europe. And you might even argue it's not even the most powerful nation on its own land. The Vatican is. So I think we need to be careful to not confuse America with God's eternal kingdom. No empire lasts forever, even really good ones. We should seek the welfare of this place, love this place as God loves it, and love the people of this place as God loves them but not put all of our hopes in it first. And so we should engage politically in our country because this is the land of our dwelling. We are seeking the welfare uh, and the shalom of this place, of America, of Virginia, of DC, of Vienna, of wherever you live. And so we should be the sort of people who lobby and promote causes and vote and work for government and run for school board and all the things to which you and I are personally called and convicted that get us engaged in the political life of this, our land of exile. But our ultimate hope is not in law and government. Laws cannot legislate the heart of a person. No man-made political system can make us love God more or cause us to worship Jesus as Lord. I love living in America, and I love the freedoms we enjoy. Christianity in America enjoys actually amazing protections and religious freedom. CCV, Christchurch Vienna, has been able to collaborate with local businesses and the town government. We, we work with a school and in the schools. We have legal protection. It, but here in America, where we have all these incredible freedoms and protections, is where the church is shrinking. Nominal Christianity is fading into kind of just secular agnosticism. But in places where Christianity is not protected, where it's persecuted and often powerless, that's where it's growing the fastest. If our desire is that Jesus' name be lifted up and people come to know Christ as Lord and the glory of God spread, 
think we probably need to keep in mind where and how the gospel is advancing the most. How do we dwell in the kingdom of God while living in the city of man? We press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. We live now in the resurrection life to come in all the ways that we can. And we trust and believe that our citizenship is in God's eternal kingdom. And we await a king, Jesus, who alone is our Savior and Lord. Let's pray. God, our Father, into your hands we give ourselves and this land, our political engagement, our love of our neighbor, our lives of work and family and home. Give us a theology of place and of this land that is filled deeply with an understanding of your eternal kingdom and the purposes for which you want to see happen in this world. May we be your outposts for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.